You're listening to an ACA podcast. I want to start this by saying that I have always been obsessed with absence. Places that don't show up on maps. Information that doesn't really show up on charts. Anything that doesn't fit. And of course, missing things. Probably nothing exemplifies my obsession with absence more than a project that I did in 2016. It's called the Library of Missing Things. The Library of Missing Things. So this is an installation, and what it is is it's a physical repository of things that are missing or data that, is, data that is missing, things that are not collected in a society where so very much is collected. I call them missing data sets because what I'm referring to is these blank spots. So you'll have a space where people are collecting lots and lots of data, and then there will be this gap, like nothing is there. It's a missing data set. These can be things like the one that started it all, which was people in the US killed by the police could be like number of people in New York who live off lease, could be the number of Roma people in the world, or the amount of cash in US dollars that's outside of the US's borders. Could be things like people illegally locked in detention centers. All of these things are missing data sets. And what I, what I like about having all of them together is that they tell this story of patterns of absence. There are all these different reasons why things are missing. And when you see them together, you start to see, you start to see that there's, there's a pattern to this. And I like to present this in this specific format, which is this filing cabinet. It seems very uh, deceptively simple, is what I would say. I think that I'm trying to do it because it has this kind of bureaucratic uh, vibe to it, you know? It's like, this kind of banality to it. And that actually is how so much of this erasure really happens. And so the piece, the form of the piece, is speaking to that exact reality. So I told you, I made this piece back in 2016. When I first made it, almost immediately it started to be exhibited internationally and domestically. So it went all around the US where I live, but also all around the world. And everywhere, everywhere, everywhere it was shown, I would try to change the data sets that were in it. So I would change it so that it would be related to whoever was looking at it or related to the context of wherever it was being shown. And I did this because what I wanted was for people to be able to look at it and understand, you know, not for it to feel removed like so many art pieces can, but for it to feel like it was really talking to people directly. I told you, the piece went on to be shown all around the world, which is cool. It's what you want. You're an artist. Um, it also went on to be featured in documentaries and in some magazines and um, where else, in books, on a TV show. It was like a documentary TV show, it still counts. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was really good, it was, I was very happy about it. But the truth is that the whole time that that piece was being shown all around the world, I just, I just had this sense that 
there was something that I hadn't quite gotten to in it. Like there was, I don't know, like there was something more to uncover. Like I needed to, to, to make sense of more. And it wasn't that I didn't like the piece. Actually, I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was a really good, um, I'm so biased, but it's true. I thought it was a great piece. <laughs> I thought it was such a good example. I thought it made tangible something that can be so hard to, to conceptualize about things that are missing. But I still felt like there was something that I was missing about the piece. So I did, whatever, I did what I always do whenever I feel like this, which is that I made another piece in the series. So the second piece in the series is called The Library of Missing Datasets version 2.0. It's very similar to the first, has a similar presentation, but a major difference of it is that the datasets in it are all about blackness. And I mean this in a kind of expansive pan-African way. At the time, I was doing all this data analysis work, and I was thinking about what it meant to be represented in data sets, but to not have control over those data sets and what was done with them. And so I was thinking about this as a form of extraction. And that explains the other difference with this piece, which is that it's gold. I was trying to get at that idea of wealth extraction. And I actually really liked this. I liked this a lot because I felt like it brought out a different like, flavor in the work, you know? Like now it was getting at these questions of ownership and power and control, and I thought that was great. And then, after I made this piece, I made another version. I made a, a third one. This was called the Library of Missing Datasets version 3.0. And this one was a departure from the other two. This one had datasets in it. It had missing things, but it was locked, so no one could see it. No matter where it's shown, not even the gallery could see it. And the reason I did that was because the datasets that were in this one, they were still missing datasets, but these ones were things where the people who were included in them might not want everyone to know that it was missing. So this was like things that were a little more high risk. And when I had finished making both of those pieces, I had this series, this series of the Library of Missing Datasets. And I felt like together they were all in conversation and they were bringing out these different nuances in each other and bringing out different textures and flavors covering these questions of possession and ownership and control and access and transparency. And I thought it was great and I also still thought that I had not figured out what the thing was that I felt like I wasn't getting about the whole piece. So I just kind of gave up, <laughs> to be honest. I um, pretty much... I don't know, I, started, I did other pieces that were great. I I'm kind of stuffed away that feeling. It was like an itch you can't scratch. It was like a squirming feeling inside of me, but I just moved it away, and I moved on. Until something brought it back. So, y'all remember 2020? <laughs> Summer of 2020, it's early pandemic. Global crisis, it's a time of clarity, it's a time of absolute chaos. And where I lived, which was in, in the US, everybody was up in arms because something that was going on there was that there had been a recent spate of killings of black people by the police. And people were really up in arms. Anybody who was there, I couldn't tell you, um, people were like up in the, just like out in the streets, marching, protesting. There were helicopters in New York, in the city where I leave, live, they were just circling around our houses all the time. There was this sense of just fury and rage and this like buzzing energy and nobody knew what to do with it. And amidst all of that, amidst all the marching and the protesting and the yelling and the gathering and the grieving and everything, I also wrote this essay. 
I wrote this essay in this publication called 538. And the essay was called, When Proof is Not Enough. And the reason I wrote it was because at this time of, as I said, absolute chaos, pundits and analysts were trying to make sense of the moment in real time. And so they all had this argument, and it all went the same way. And the argument was that people were out in the streets. I told you there were these killings, these killings of people by the police. Now people were out in the streets and were angry about it. And the, what the pundits and what these analysts were saying was that the reason for that was technology. And that the answer, the reason why everybody was up and doing all of this was because we have phones. And so people could have their phones and they could document when these incidents would happen, whether George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, there are all of these names. And people could, could document like the bodies laying on the ground in a pool of blood. And they could upload that to social media. And then the photos would become this evidence. And people saw it and people were like, wow, this is proof. And this is what was getting everybody out in the street. This fact that this, the photos that were produced from our mobile devices, which were collected to this technological infrastructure, they could be this evidence that could rally all of us. And my response to that was, bullshit. <laughs> I was like, this is not true. This is, that, that makes no sense at all. And I knew it made no sense at all because I have spent so long, I think I told you all, the, the data set that started, the library of missing data sets, was people killed by the police back in 2016. And I have spent so long looking into this. And I knew that in the history of the US, there have been countless people who have provided evidence of police brutality over and over and over again. And they have presented it. And nothing has ever changed. And in the article that I wrote for 538, I listed a bunch of examples. One of the ones that's my favorite is this, 1951, the Civil Rights Congress, which was this kind of leftist civil rights defense group. They created this document called We Charge Genocide. And in it, they write to, they say that according to the definition of genocide presented by the UN, the US itself is guilty of genocide against black Americans in the country and has been guilty of it pretty much since the whole time it's been a country. And what they did was, this is 1951, they went and they gathered every single proof of a person who had been killed by the police and they listed all of the information about it and they collated all of these papers and they sent it out for everyone to read and nothing happened. And this is one example. There are countless examples in US history. And in fact, there are so many examples that there are theorists who have said that the, the constant production and like bringing out of these examples, the constant bringing out of these images, these violent images, that all of this is actually part of the point and that the whole point of it is to maintain this sense of, of that pain. And that if you can hold on to that pain, that becomes the point. It doesn't become any proof. So after I write something, I usually don't go back and reread it. But this piece was really different. I went back, and I read this one over and over and over again. And every time that I read this, it was like something new would jump out to me in what I had written. And every time I read it, I would put more and more gaps in time between the last time that I had read it. And eventually, very slowly, but finally, I started to realize what it was 
that I had been missing from the library of missing data sets. Okay, so there are missing things. Data that is excluded from these uh, situations that are, you know, these moments that are completely data saturated, these things that we collect in a society, these things that we don't collect in a society where so much is collected, all of this, there are missing things. But then there are unknowable things. And those are things that are not missing, and they're things that are not false. They're things that are true, but they're things that are too true, and in fact are so true that they can't be known within the dominant paradigm of knowledge that they exist in. And once I started thinking about this, I started seeing these examples all over history. For example, I don't know if any of you know who this is. I'm just kidding, I don't expect you to. This is Galileo. <laughs> Galileo, 16th and 17th century Italian astronomer. Maybe some of you had to learn about Galileo in school. So, Galileo, in 1633, Galileo publishes this public support of the idea of heliocentrism which is, of course, that the sun is at the center of the universe and all of the planets move around it, but is completely counter to the idea at the time, which was that the earth was at the center of the universe, beneath the heavens. And this was actually a theory that was promoted by Copernicus almost 100 years earlier, in 1543. So when Galileo was writing, it was 1633, a century of time in between. Galileo wrote in support of the theory. What happened to Galileo after he did this is that he was convicted of heresy, um, charged by the Catholic Church, and he was sentenced to house arrest, and eventually he had to publish something recanting that he had said that. And the question is, like, why? Why couldn't the Catholic Church have just been like, we disagree? Of course they couldn't. They couldn't at all, because it would have, everything that Galileo was saying, it wasn't just a scientific fact that he was saying. What he was saying was something that went against the entire just knowledge system that they believed in. It was the one that they were committed to defending. It was the one that gave them their power and their primacy. And also, he was going against what they believed the scriptures themselves said. And this is not me being like super clever and reading between the lines. The Catholic Church literally said it themselves. They're like, if this is true, then this would go against our entire plan of salvation. <laughs> so this, talking about unknowable things, Unknowable things are things that are unknowable within a collective system, but it's not like it has to just be like a political system, you know, like something like that. They also, and it's not like it's just science makes things known. Science, the, the scientific community is also a system of knowledge and relations that people are acting in. So even within science, there are unknowable things. For example, x-rays. X-rays are discovered at the end of the 19th century. When they're discovered, they're considered by many scientists to be a hoax. People think they weren't even true. And the reason for that is because the technology that people were using to do their laboratory experiments were these cathode ray tubes, and they actually were the things that emitted x-rays in the first place. And so what that meant was that tons of scientists had been using this and had been emitting x-rays and not noticing it at all. And then what it also meant was that all of the experiments that they had done, not all, but some of the experiments they had done, in the past they would need to redo with it. So keep in mind, this is like in the 19th century, this is like that moment of enlightenment scientific um, trust in scientific instrumentation and inquiry. And when, so this, this becomes, this just, <laughs> look, I'm getting all riled up. This is like an unknowable fact. <laughs> it's another unknowable fact. X-rays themselves were an unknowable fact because they challenged all of this. And Thomas Kahn writes about this. He says that the discovery of X-rays challenged 
deeply entrenched expectations. And this, I think, is what the unknowable does, is it challenges these deeply entrenched expectations. And the degree to which it challenges that is directly related to how much it will be fought or suppressed or denied. And the third example, of course, police brutality in the US. In the US, the depth of structural racism has always been unknowable. And it's unknowable because it goes against the very myth and story that the US believes so strongly about itself that it tries to project to the world. And this, I think, is what I was trying to get at in the article that I wrote for 538. So every system of knowledge or relations creates its own unknowable things. And if you go against those, then you will feel as theorist Sylvia Winter writes, that whatever you have to say will not be accepted very easily. So this is around the time when I realized I'm very drawn to missing things, always will be. I'm also very drawn to these things that are collectively unknowable because they challenge, they challenge what a group actually believes itself to be. I'm drawn to unknowable things as well. Or to be more accurate, I'm drawn to what it takes to make that shit known. Part two, make true things known. The unknowable is all around us. It does not hide in plain sight. There are walls that are constructed to make it so that we can't see it or sense it. And for those of us who would want to pierce through those walls or who would want to break them, we first have to commit ourselves to the very challenging task of seeing them in the first place and knowing what the ground that we are even moving on is itself. So this is when I started to get into archival footage. I like archival footage because it says the quiet part out loud. So every system of knowledge or relations creates its own unknowable things. Any media created in that time encodes those things. So then if you're looking back at that media and you have some distance, you can actually begin to see it in a way that would be hard to see it when you're in the moment yourself. This is the magic of archival footage. I'm going to show this through an example. It's going to be about something that relates to all of us, that everybody knows, everybody is familiar with, no matter where you are, no matter what you do. That is food, more specifically food production. Okay. I want to talk about a person. His name is Earl Butts. That's a real person. I didn't make that up. It's his name. <laughs> okay, so Earl Butts was Secretary of Agriculture in the US in the 1970s under Presidents Nixon and Ford. And Earl Butts is famous for three quotes. The first one, food is a weapon. I don't know how much, bless you, I don't know how much more blatant you could be with that quote about seeing food as the next battleground. That's what that one is about. The second quote, get big or get out. This is a quote actually to farmers. This is him telling farmers that the days of small time farming operations are done. It is time to get big, become corporations, industrialize, and that is what the US is investing in. And number three, plant fence row to fence row. This is just standard capitalist maximization of 
space, you know, optimization of profit, all of that. So the question is, why, why, why this sense of like gearing up for a war when it comes to food? And the answer can find in this quote, which is representative of an entire way of thought. This is from John Hanna, who was director of the US Agency for International Development in the 1970s. And what he says is basically that at present population growth rates, we need to double food production so that we can feed everybody in the world. But that's actually not what he says. He says if everybody is going to get fed, food production will need to get doubled. I'm removing the we because he wasn't implying that the US should be feeding everyone. If anything, what this quote is speaking to is the sense in the US government at this time of, scarce, of scarcity around food. Hence, this sense of a battleground, sense of like gearing up, what do we have to do? And this is the time, this post-World War II period, this like 50s to the late 70s in particular, also kind of coinciding with the Green Revolution for anybody who knows about that. This is the time when the US and many other nations begin gearing up and building this huge technological agricultural infrastructure. And so that is what happens in the US around this time, very much supported by the policies of Earl Butts and others. An example of this. And what you're looking at right now is archival footage from around this period. This is archival footage that I programmatically gathered and assembled and treated and blah, 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 cut and gridded and all those things. Gathered it all together. Gathered, I gathered it from the US Department of Agriculture. That's the same department that Oral Butts was working with, working at, or in charge of. And what is great about this archival footage here is that it shows what is new and what is old in this push for tech-driven, huge, big agriculture, industry, industrial, just getting, getting bigger, scaling up. And what's new is the technology. What's old are the labor relations. And what I did was use all of this footage as part of a, a piece, this art piece that I made. I'm gonna play a little clip of it right now. It's much longer than what you're going to hear. So what, what you're going to see is lots of this footage. There's going to be a kind of baseline in the background. Be warned. The whole point of it is to lull you into the groove. Don't fall into the groove. Stay out of it. What I want you to do is listen for the voiceovers that are over the top. really hear what they were saying, I don't think. Wait, am I on again? Thank you. I don't know if you could hear what they were saying. That's okay. Maybe you fell into the groove anyway. <laughs> Point is, made this piece, what I wanted to do is 
have this kind of baseline thing. I told you, this groove, I'm bringing it up not just because I am a bassist and like music, but because there's something in this, the way that myths operate is that they kind of lull you in, and that's something I'm trying to recreate in this. But if, you're, if you can hear it, and I encourage you to listen to the piece online, what you can hear over the top is that the USDA and its archival footage was super clear about what it was trying to do. It's like we're creating potatoes that are easier to peel. People in the US didn't used to be able to eat chicken all the time, but now every single meal you can eat it. You can see they, they talk about exactly the mission that they were trying to advance. This is what I mean, archival footage tells you to your face. You can hear it in a different time. So the title of this piece, which was created for the Whitney's, um, as a commission for the Whitney's Artport, is 40% of food in the US is wasted. How the hell is that progress meant? And this statistic in the title, 40% of food in the US is wasted, is a current statistic from the US Department of Agriculture, the same place releasing all of that footage from before. And the absolute irony of this is that back in the 70s, John Hanna talked about how by the end of the century, needed to double food production, only to get to this, only for us to get to this point, past the end of the century, and almost half of food is wasted. There is an unknowable fact here, and the unknowable fact that is tied to the US's commitment at the time to science and technology-driven development, as well as to capitalism, is that it's not just about food production. What matters is food being, how food is distributed, if you want people to be fed. Now, I think that this fact, what I like about this fact is that it's, I think we're beginning to see past the face of it. We're beginning to see the insides of it it's becoming more known. And that's due to the efforts of lots of farmers, lots of organizers, uh, food advocates, and even the UN itself. I think people are realizing now that, food, that to feed people is not just about tapping into this idea of endless production and endless scale. It actually has to do with what do we do with the things that we have. But if you think of this as a kind of wall that was being constructed around the unknowable, and now is being dismantled. I think what is important to know is that it's not like this is dismantled uniformly or by everyone. And as proof of that, you can look at another quote from recent times from HDI Global, which is this insurance company that's all around the world but based here in Melbourne. And you can see they say almost the exact same thing. By 2050, to feed everybody, we are going to need to double food production. So when it comes to these unknowable things, it's like we have to look at it and try to see, see what is being shrouded right in front of us, right in front of our eyes. And the question is, how do you do that? Part three, attuning. The problem. But this is when we get to the hair and the cable. So I have this friend. She's an amazing artist. Her name is Okwi Opokwasili. And she does these things that she calls soundings. 
soundings are kind of exactly what they sound like. They are people coming together and making sounds together. But the thing is, it's not like singing. You're not trying to get to some melody or harmonize. It's not like you're being in a choir. You literally are just making sounds with each other. So usually one person will kind of start it off, and then more people join in. Sometimes you get into this like, call and response with other people. Sometimes it fades to silence. Sometimes you find yourself trying to lift somebody else up or falling back. Sometimes people will start shouting or they'll be wailing or they'll just completely pull back. It's so weird. And it's kind of terrifying. But the reason that it is is because there's just nothing that you can hide behind when you're in it. You're just there, like, making these sounds together with other people. And as strange as it is, if you do it right and you do it for long enough, you get to this point where you just really start to feel kind of free. I say all of this because I have the sense that if every system of knowledge or relations creates its own unknowable things, then it might be that the tools that emerge from that system are not suited, or not the best suited, to making those unknowable things known. And this is the hair in the cable. This is what it's about. It's about this idea of information. If we think of cable as the information, it's what does it mean to actually bring in other ways of knowing or other ways of being that emerge from different, not just cultures, but different groups, different groups who have formed these, their own systems of knowledge or relations. Hair in the Cable is this call for flexibility and for fluidity, and it's at its core this sense that if every single system of knowledge or relations creates its own unknowable thing, there is probably another system of knowledge or relations that has the antidote to the unknowable thing in the first one. And so what is contained in this idea of the hair and the cable is the fact that what is missing is still there. It's the fact that we are committed to making true things known, and it's the fact that to get there requires some form of attunement. And I am not here to tell us how exactly to do this, but I'm here to say that it is worth the attempt. Thank you. Is the volume okay? Okay, great. So thanks a lot, Mimi. That was an amazing, incredibly rich presentation. And I think Mimi deserves another round of applause from all of us. That was amazing. Thank you. <laughs> so nice of you.
Um, okay, so I have tons of ideas running through my mind, especially after having seen your work and then after having heard this. And I think what I'll try to do in my response is two things. Firstly, I'll try and build connections between your work and what you just said, because I think you kind of build this macro structure of the knowable and the unknowable, and your work uh, fits really well within that structure. Uh, and secondly, I'll try and relate your macrostructure with the very theme of the summer school, which is data relations. Uh, and though I have tons of ideas in my mind, I'll try and stick to three uh, in the interest of time. Um, so the first is uh, this language of knowable and unknowable that you use. And I think when we begin to think in terms of data, uh, I really like the way, especially in your work, you talk about structures of data rather than data structures. And that journey comes really well in your three iterations of uh, the missing data set. So you start with the data set, but then you begin to question the very structure of the data set and then the politics of the data set. And this language of data structures, um, uh, corporate discourse and academic computer science is really saturated with ways in which we build data sets. So this entire language of uh, how do we store, manage, and organize data for, say, supervised or unsupervised learning. And then this uh, uh, can broadly also include things like clean data, messy data, etc. We can go on with this language about what is data, but your work, what your work does is that it really opens up uh, uh, this idea of data. In a, in, it, it expands this idea to talk about the various structures of data uh, and the apparatuses around it, whether it be the material infrastructure of cables or the question of labor where a lot of exploitative micro-work is uh, delegated to gig workers in the global south, and I think some of your work also uh, talks about that. So you don't, I think through your journey what comes out is that you are not telling stories, uh, uh, that you're not telling stories with the data, but about data. Uh, and, that, and I think that's really an inversion of Friedrich Kittler's much-quoted famous opening line in gramophone film typewriter which is media determine our situation, which for the summer school we can rephrase as data determine our situation. But I think what your, a lot of what your work tries to do is not to ask the question uh, how data determine our situation, but what situations or structures determine data. And I think the version 3.0 of the missing data set really comes there. So that was one thing. And I have two other points. Oh, let's start there. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Thank you. I think that's a very astute observation. I think that probably the central issue that I always have in trying to create work is that I'm not really interested in individual things. As you say, I'm interested in structures. And actually, stories about structures are so hard to tell. How do you tell a story of this whole thing when everything about us is geared towards telling the individual or like this, like the something just small, like things that are easier to hold. And so I like searching for things that become ways to enter into a much larger story. I think that's why, you know, I start this by saying I, I just love absence. I think looking at a gap always, when there's a gap in a system, it really tells you, it becomes a way to trace the system itself. And I think that's the thing, telling stories about structures Actually, it's more like tracing the outline of them. And if, I always feel like if I can get at that, if I can do that, then I've managed to, to hold something that usually eludes grasp, my grasp. Right, no, I completely agree, but I think we could 
your work is about gaps and absences, but I think uh, the film that's playing inside, and I encourage all of you to see if, in case you haven't, is also about this language of possibility, isn't it? So although it's about critiquing and questioning the structure, it is also about this language of possibility that you bring up. And in there, I think you're engaging a lot with feminist and decolonial thinking, mm -hmm. something that you come up with at the end, the question of knowledge, alternative knowledge systems, which we can come to. But I brought this language of possibility because um, this entire idea of weaving that you bring up, so there's a gap, you're literally cutting open the cable. And there's a scene in the film, it almost felt like an operation theater, where the cable is being cut open, almost treated, so that it, uh, it becomes a healthy mediator, and you know, through that ritualistic performance. So I feel that this language of possibility is really interesting, especially vis-a-vis -vis weaving, because it takes us back to the history of computing. I found this really interesting. Mm. Um, and, and the jacquard loom. So for those of us who don't know about the jacquard loom, uh, it's one of the originary references on how computing began. It was a loom that was developed through the 18th uh, and the early 19th centuries by a French weaver. And it's something that inspired Charles Babbage to uh, develop the analytical engine. So this question of weaving is very central to the history of computing, and your work kind of opens that domain of possibility, uh, as well as helps us revert this history of computing and the past of computing to imagine an alternative future. Mm. So would you like to talk about critique versus possibility and how you kind of got there? Yeah, I think it's that they, they're both necessary. And to stay just in the place of critique is, to me, a cop-out. But it's a very attractive, it's a very seductive one. Because it is very important to point to what is not working and what needs to be changed about a system. That is incredibly, incredibly important work. And I think in a lot of my early work especially, I was very, very dedicated to doing that. The problem, though, is that if you stay in that space, then it means that you're just constantly reacting to what other people create. And you give up the ability to determine any kind of, as you say, set a kind of future or kind of possibility. And that is, that is fine. It is still a useful place to encounter. But as you know, I... I never want to do just one thing or do things in just one way. I always want to switch around. And so I think that you're right. That piece is very much what it is, what it is in line with is a quote that I'm constantly thinking of um, from Ursula Franklin, theorist, who says how technology has built the house that most of us live in. And more and more of our life is being pulled into this house. But actually, it's a house that is still being built and still being broken down and that we're actually involved in that. And I think that that's it. And in that work, it really is more about the call to, well, then what, what do we do? What can we do? And actually, what, what are the practices that are necessary? And maybe it's not so much about we do this and this and this. Maybe it's about this, as you say, like the affect of it and the things that we recall and the traditions that have existed for a long time but actually can dust off and say, look, these are important. These can be centered. We can bring them back in. I think that work is very much, very much engaged with that. And in a way, I think all of the works are building on each other in different, in different iterations and trying to, I'm trying to do that. I hope it shows. You know, building on your point about bringing in traditions that have existed for long but probably aren't visible, so this entire process of accessing the unknowable, visibilizing it, audibilizing it, and the point that you end with about uh, bringing in these knowledge systems uh, feels extremely important. Uh, and it comes up in your work, and, and I feel, as I said, there's this connection between what you just said and, and your other work. So would you like to talk about uh, the idea of the cosmological a little? Because 
uh, you're borrowing a lot from um, ebook cosmology uh, in, in your work. And it's also about this question of you trying to talk about accessing uh, the unknowable and infusing it with sort of alternative uh, or pluriversal uh, forms of knowledge. Uh, because I think, uh, and, and I think I'll let you go there about how you evoke uh, goddess Allah, who's the goddess mm. of uh, Earth. That's the sense I got from your piece, and it would be great to hear you on that. Sure. Right, that is this, this little strain of that piece that I don't talk too much about. So you, you went deep, so it's good. Um, it's, there is this, I'm, I'm Ivo, which is a group from Nigeria, and we have this cosmology about when, if things, Igbo people, the way that we are with cosmology and spirituality, traditionally, pre-colonialism, was just a very, it was very true to how we are. You know, we're not really the type who are like, oh, there's God, and we, we give, you know, we, are subjects of God. It's evil people are always kind of bartering with our gods. So we're like, oh no, something went wrong. Okay, I guess I'll build something to you. Wait, things have gotten better. <laughs> you know, maybe I'll wait. <laughs> and then when things go wrong, you come back and then you're like, oh, okay. And so it's really this, this kind of give and take. And there is this particular God, Allah, who is the God of land. And so the idea is that anything in the land is for her. And so that includes your ancestors who are buried in the ground. That includes crops that grow from the ground. And I was thinking in this particular time and age, that includes technological infrastructure, <laughs> which is in the ground. And so in a way, there's this little piece of that, that work, which is a tongue-in-cheek joke to, I guess, not, not even joke, but kind of reference to other Igbo people, which is that when something is wrong with things in the ground, what you are meant to do is build a piece of, build art to Allah, and then you leave it. And then hopefully, she recognizes that, and you're like, okay. Now it'll get better. <laughs> so that's funny. You, are, you went deep to find that specific <laughs> reference. It's not one I talk about as much. But I think there is something there. I, I feel very connected to this idea. And I'm not the only artist in this show who I think is tied to this, that there are many different, I'm not, I actually really love technology. And I love, I'm, I'm a fan of data. I really am. That's why I work in this space. I actually think it's quite useful in certain ways. And that I think my issue is the overextension of it, the overrepresentation of a particular way of thought, rather than it being like this is suited to specific tasks and not more than that. This is what I think about every, this is what I mean, every single system has this. And I think, yeah, I think that I can leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt, you can. Well, I could go on so long, but okay, I'll, I'll quickly say I think that the idea that, um, one of the ideas that we have inherited is that when we think about our ideas of technology and science, it's cut off from anything like spiritual or any, anything else. And this is what I mean when I say other artists in the show are engaging with this. That that, to me, seems like a loss. <laughs> it doesn't seem complete. And I think that it is, so in that piece, one of the layers of it is that, is connecting back to my own roots and bringing that while also creating a piece that can operate in a lot of different spaces and do a lot of different things. And it's okay if you don't know all of the different pieces, but it, it speaks to all of those. No, that's very true, because I think what's really stood out for me in your work is this combination or amalgamation of rationality and cosmology. Because this entire discourse on data is really saturated with uh, rationality. So questions of prediction, classification, machine learning, uh, and, and you know, like this kind of, a, of a rhetoric or lexicon. Mm. And I think your, your work really punctures that. But what I felt is that, if, if I push it a little more, that this language of 
um, this language of rationality also, also reifies data as this ultimate commodity, as something that's accumulated. And what I felt your work does is like not reification, but rather uh, the deification of the network in some senses, by which I don't mean godly reverence, but I mean this infusion of cosmology where ritual stands in for certain kinds of practices and agencies that we kind of missed, mm. coming back to the question of knowledge systems and what's missing and what's absent. So I think this, this play between the cable wire, but also textiles uh, and cosmology and rituals really uh, you know, it's, it's the peg around probably which critique and possibility uh, can work. Very much so. And I think it's there. It's this thing of, it's what I'm often thinking. It's almost like balance. What needs to be minimum? I think of Astrid Taylor has this quote where she talks about the filmmaker. The filmmaker. And she talks about how certain voices are, there are certain voices, and when they speak, people attribute extra importance and significance to them. So she's like, when I interview these like old, just like old white men who are like the experts in this topic, she's like, people will listen to what they say. And she's like, when I interview these young like valley girls, like people won't, <laughs> people will just like dismiss them a little bit more. And so she's like, in my work, what I'm trying to do is just like level, <laughs> like bring some down and bring others up, not in a sense of anything being better, but rather about what is overrepresented and what is under. And so in that piece, it's like, well. What do we I'm not interested in saying, let's get rid of all of this, all data is bad, but I'm not interested in saying that, we, that everything needs to fall into the space of prediction or, or this particular logic. It's useful for certain tests, but not all. And then also this idea of like ritual and people coming together. In the film, you never see the faces of the, of the people, you know, of the women who are involved, but it is, there's something in that, like the way that they're working together. It's not really an assembly line, it's more like that, it's like a shared kind of collaborative, there's, there's something, it's, it's that ritual, there's a different, there's a feel to it, it's hard to put an, a name to it, but it felt important to put that together with this kind of technological infrastructure and to combine them and say that those can be combined. And there's something that maybe to get to a different point doesn't mean erasing everything that has come before, but it means how do we refigure our relations? And I think this can be the last question, and also we'll have to end after this, but on that very note, would you like to talk a bit about the process of making the film and the actors? Because I was very curious about, uh, because uh, we understand what we see, but we don't understand the backstage and the behind the scenes process, so it would be great to know about that. Mm, yeah, sure, of course. Um, it was really fun. <laughs> it was the actors who were involved in it. Um, there are three different women. One of them is a professional actress, actually, who we like cast for the film, because which which is funny because you don't see anybody's face, and yet <laughs> had this you had this sense that we just needed somebody. The woman who 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 speaks and who like blows the the kind of like the spices and everything is a professional actress because we're like we need you to embody this idea. We need you to really really hold this. And she did a great job, even though it's a credit on her, it's a credit on her film like resume, and you can't see her face. <laughs> but it's okay. And the other two are actually good friends of mine who I've had these sorts of conversations with over and over again. And I really wanted to put them in it because I felt like they they got it. <laughs> They're not people who care about data or technology at all, but they got they got it. <laughs> they just got this idea of what it, like this relations and what, what we were trying to do. And so, and then me, I'm in it too. I don't know if you can tell, can't see my face. I'm one of the people too. And so we all, we all did it, we shot it together over one day, had a ton of wonderful crew helping, everybody's listed there. Um, it was a really beautiful experience. It was, it was really magical and I think, I mean, I think it shows. <laughs> totally, and I think on that happy and beautiful note, we'd have to end the conversation. 
So thank you very much, and feel free to speak with Mimi later. No, don't, oh yeah, later, but now. Yes, later. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mimi and Mihak. Um, we're not over yet. So um, what we'll do is invite everyone to go into the gallery space. Just mind the carpet if everyone wants to make their way through um, the left-hand side of the installation. And we'll meet at the end of this room. Thank you. Thank you.